Caleb and Jacob, why don't the two of you come up? So we're continuing a sermon series that we started last week called Promises, Promises. And it's actually a collision of two sermon series because when I got sick with COVID, I had to reschedule some stuff a little bit. So we're doing a focus on Advent promises, Christmas promises, and we're also wrapping up the book of Haggai and that series, The Word and the World, and, and asking how God's Word speaks to our world today. So you're getting two for the price of one this morning. You can thank me later. It will not be two sermons long, just in case you're worried about that. But this morning, Caleb and Jacob are going to lead us in prayer and then read the scripture for us. So let's prepare our hearts and prepare our minds to truly receive the word of the Lord this morning. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we give thanks that we belong to a church that believes the Bible is the word of the Lord and teaches its truth every week. Please be with Pastor Matthew as he brings your word to us today. We pray that we will present your word clearly and that we, as a family of faith, will receive your word. Also, may we apply what we heard today in our lives coming this week. Thank you for sending your son to be born in a major and then to pay the penalty of our sins so we can become sons and daughters of the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. Haggai 2, 20-23. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my assignant ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Matthew 2, 1-12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is one of... Where is one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was born, in Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold 
and of incense and of myrrh. And uh, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Thanks to both of you and to all of you who helped out this morning leading us into God's word. So today, as we work through this text, we're going to talk about one harsh reality and then two wonderful and enduring promises. And the harsh reality that we're going to start with is that the darkness is out there, and it's also in here. It's also in here. Major W. Lee Warren was an Air Force neurosurgeon for a while, and at one point he was deployed to Iraq. And as most neurosurgeons are, Lee was very much into being in control. He controlled everything in his life all the time, his work, his wife, his kids, everything. And then he gets news that as part, of his, as part of his Air Force service, he's going off to serve, not in the front lines of combat, but in a combat zone in Iraq. And so he's sent off and he gets there, and, and right before he leaves, he and his wife finally acknowledge that their marriage is over. They're done. And they're going to get a divorce, but, but Lee says, we aren't going to tell the kids till I get back, because if I die there, I want them to remember me as a good man, not as a, not as a divorced father who left them alone. Okay. So he has all of these experiences there, as you'd expect, in combat. And and one particular day, toward the end of his deployment, he's out, going to run across the base. It's a huge base, going to run across the base to get some things at, at the little store they have there. And he decides to leave all his body armor behind and cut across the middle of the base where there's this big, just open area. He thinks it'll be fast, I can just jog through it. So he heads off in his jogging clothes. And then as he's jogging across the compound, the sirens go off and the mortars and the rockets start coming in. Yet again, they've had a couple off weeks, but yet again, they're getting bombed. They're getting mortared. Things are coming over the fence. And the machine guns start lighting up in reply and there's these explosions back and forth. And, and Lee is in the middle of the compound Nowhere he can go. No bunkers to hide in, nothing. The best he can do is kind of curl up next to a little concrete wall that he finds, and he curls up and he starts praying. And then after a while, he starts praying because he's praying, Lord, make it stop. And every time he prays that, he hears another explosion. And he sits there curled up for half an hour, for an hour, and it doesn't stop and it doesn't stop, and it doesn't stop, and it doesn't stop. And replaying in his mind is the loop of all the things that, that he thought he could control. And as he was jogging across the compound earlier, he was thinking, when I get back home, I'm going to control everything, and, and we're going to get divorced, but I'm going to make sure my kids know I love them, and they're going to have a great life, and, and I'm going to get out of the Air Force, and I'm going to establish my own practice, and I'm going to be incredibly, and everything is going to go my way. And as he sits there, lays there, curls up more and more into a ball, he realizes he actually has no control. He has what he calls this great moment of mental clarity as he's curled up there, and, and he sees like movie credits rolling before him. I have no control over this war. I can do nothing 
about all this instability and all the violence and all the trouble. And then next is the credits roll. I can't do anything about where the next mortar or the next rocket is going to hit. There is nothing I can do to control whether I am safe or not. And then after that, I, I really have no control over how my kids will respond to me, no matter what happens. I cannot control my family. I cannot control my life. And the explosions keep coming, and, and Lee keeps waiting for it all to end and wonders what's going to be next, what's in store for me. God's people at the time, at the time of Haggai, God's people at the time of Jesus coming, God's people today, we are living, perhaps not literally, but we are living spiritually in a war zone of a world. At Haggai's time, God's people had, had been carried off by the Babylonians to a completely different place. They had been taken away from everything, and then a few of them had been allowed to come back, but they were still this tiny, powerless little province completely under the control of the Persian Empire. Before Haggai's time, before this book was written, the decade or so before that had been really very unstable. And looking forward, Persia and Egypt were about to start a big war, and so so this tiny little province where God's people lived was out of control. Things were scary. And Haggai gives us that, that picture a bit in the background, and, and then he also points out in ways that we'll have to trace out a little bit more today because it's not obvious to us, but Haggai also traces out how things aren't just broken out there, but how even inside God's people are in deep, deep trouble. You may have picked up a, a little bit of a funny phrase or one that we don't use that, that the last verse or so of the Haggai talks about a signet ring. And we don't use signet rings these days, but, but they would have a couple meanings in general and then in particular for Haggai's original audience. One general meaning of a signet ring was like a seal or a signature that, that if you gave someone your signet ring, they were allowed to sign off on things on your behalf. If you know the Joseph story, when the Pharaoh made Joseph second in command over the whole country, he took off his signet ring and he gave it to Joseph. And that was the symbol that Joseph, Joseph had the power of the king. But a signet ring had a second meaning, and that's more like, more like our wedding rings. A signet ring signified closeness, belonging, intimacy, close relationship. There's a place in Song of Songs, chapter 8, that, that talks about a signet ring, much how we might talk about a wedding ring today, as, as a symbol of our beloved. So when they heard signet ring, the original audience would have heard all of that, but then there's a text from the prophet Jeremiah that would have been in their heads too, and I'm just going to read you that. It's just a couple verses, but I want you to hear this as, as what the Lord said to his people just a few decades before Haggai. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, and that was the king at that time, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you, those you fear. 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you was born, and there you both will die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. The people of God had become such a stench to them, such a stench to him. They had broken the relationship over and over and over. They had worshipped other gods. They had refused to serve the Lord, and God had warned them and warned them and warned them. And finally, they come to the point where God says, I'm going to throw you out. We're done. We're done. And the, the casting away of the king, like, like a signet ring you no longer wanted, was a symbol of that. And so when God's people heard Haggai, that would have been the picture in the back of their minds. And now let's jump forward to Jesus' time, and we read about King Herod, and Herod is the personification of evil out there and evil in here. King Herod is half Jew, so he kind of belongs to God's people and kind of doesn't, and he is all crazy. He's a good military mind, he's a great builder, he can be generous, but he is literally insane. He is so suspicious and so power-hungry that anybody you know, who he thinks in a million years might come after his throne, he wipes out. He wipes out whole extended families who might have any kind of connection to the throne. He wipes out his favorite wife, and, and all the texts, for some reason, emphasize it's his favorite wife and all their kids and his mother-in-law and his brother-in-law. And this is just typical behavior for him. Makes for awkward family reunions. Oh, where's Philip? Oh, I killed him. Oh. King Herod knows as his death approaches, no one's going to mourn him. So he hatches this plot to have all the noble, nobility of the area, all of the Jewish leaders taken out and killed the day he dies. They might not cry for me, but they're going to cry. This is a man who is not well. And he directs that outward, and inside he just has this boiling rage and suspicion and, and lack of peace and ongoing conflict. And then in Matthew 2, we see the magi, magi show up, and they go and they ask King Herod, where's the new king? And with what I just told you, what is the predictable response of Herod? Not just somebody's going to die, but a lot of people are going to die. I'm going to keep my throne. And so we see what lurks in the background of Haggai still looking, lurking in the background there, that evil empires come and go, but there is always an evil empire. And these days, I would guess if we took a sampling of, of the people in this room and the people in our state and the people in our nation, we don't have a lot of political or social bright spots right now. And whether you're going to talk about issue A, B, or C, you probably can get people pretty wound up and pretty frustrated about how things are not right. And even when we knock over one evil empire, well, the next one comes along right afterwards. And while it's easy to point the finger out there, if we turn around and look at our own lives, we find brewing in our own hearts conflict, division, lack of peace. We've all got a little King Herod inside us that has that selfish craziness that if, if I can't be king, nobody can. And I'm going to be king or I'm going to be queen and I'm going to do things my way. And we don't tend to respond very well when we don't get our way. 
there is a real lack of peace, a real darkness out there. And so often, even in our own lives, there is a real lack of peace and a real darkness. And Haggai comes and speaks into that situation with two promises. And we'll mention both of them and then work them through one after the other. The first promise is that the Lord will shake and shatter the powers of evil. And the second promise is that the Lord will claim and care for his people. Let's go back to neurosurgeon Major Dr. Lee Warren. And as, as he huddles up against that concrete wall and grows smaller and smaller, because that's what you do in that kind of situation, right? You return to the fetal position and you just lay there. And he has this moment of the movie credits scrolling by and realizing that he's completely, utterly, totally, absolutely out of control. And the mortars go on and on, the rockets go on and on, and, and then he has another moment of tremendous clarity. See, all his life he's been a Christian, but not, not an inside Christian, just kind of a surface Christian. I'll go to church, I'll do some of those stuff, but I don't really care. But as the Lord has been working on him throughout his deployment, and now at this moment when he is at the very bottom, he realizes, he realizes, I am not in control. I am completely out of control, but I'm still in the hands of the Lord. And the Lord, well, the Lord has this taken care of. I can't guarantee the results. I don't know how this is going to end, but the Lord has me taken care of. And in that moment, somehow the Lord worked in Lee so that he could give up control. And he can say, whether I live or die, the Lord will take care of me and the Lord will take care of my kids and I can let it go. Curled up next to that concrete wall, neurosurgeon, major doctor, Lee Warren finally found God's peace in letting go. And eventually the attack ends, the sirens go off again to say it's all clear and he gets up and decides he doesn't actually need to go shopping and, and just stumbles back to his room and sits down there and gives thanks. Well, thanks for deliverance from his circumstances, but even more, thanks for the new peace that he has found. And that is the message that Haggai wants all of us not just to hear, but to really experience. These are the promises that the Lord gives us, that, that first of all, the Lord will shake and shatter the powers of evil. Verses 21 and 22 in Haggai tell us that, that even the heavens and the earth are under the control of the Lord, and he will shake everything, royal thrones, foreign kingdoms, chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders, foreign kingdoms, dictators and presidents, tanks and trucks, helicopters and planes, mortars and rockets. All right, I'm paraphrasing. But the Lord will shake all of those things to pieces and bring his kingdom. And we see this in Matthew 2 in, in ways that, that I had not really connected until I dug into these two texts this week. But, but in Matthew 2, we have these magi come, and the magi are this class of, class of well, they're scholars, they're, they're government officials, almost kings, they're, they're people who read the skies and are wise men, all of that wrapped up together. And, and you know the word magi actually originally comes from a Persian word. 
And as far as we can tell, these magi came from Babylon. And in the course of normal events, that probably wouldn't mean a whole lot, but, but think of that in terms of the life situation of people in Haggai's time. They had just come back from exile to Babylon, where they'd been carried away by the powers of the world. They are under the authority of the Persian Empire. And now we fast forward 500 years and these wise men, these kings, as we sometimes sing, we three kings of Orient are coming to the place of God's people, coming to the true king and kneeling before him and giving him their praise and their gifts. The Lord in the coming of the Magi is shaking and shattering the powers of the world and bringing them before him in worship and obedience. Even when Jesus is just a baby or or at most a toddler, the Lord is working through him to shake and to shatter the structures of this world to bring them into his kingdom. The Lord undoes evil for good. Now, at this point, we always have to say, he's not doing all of that yet. We are not yet in the new heavens and the new earth. There is still much brokenness. But, but when we look at the world, along with all the reasons we have to despair, we can pick out tremendous ways that God is at work. If we look around the world, this is the most prosperous and healthy time, I think, that, that we've really ever seen. And there are probably the most freedoms enjoyed by the most people and and the most human rights provided for in in probably the whole history of the world. Relative to most of world history, and this is is true of varying degrees in different parts of the world, I'm not saying we're in a heavenly place, but, but relative to most of world history, the world is actually in a pretty good place. Evil empires come, but they also go. And yes, you can point to historical causes, but but underneath that, I think we need to be grateful to the Lord that he limits evil, that he undercuts evil, that he does not let things just go on from worse to worse to worse. We have glimpses of hope in the world, and the only reason we have those glimpses of hope and peace is because the Lord is at work. But of course... He hasn't made everything right. We can't control the world. We can't make the war stop. But we do have hope that the Lord will bring his peace. And we can trust that the Lord brings his peace into our lives. In this text, the Lord assures us that he will claim and care for us. In verse 23, the Lord makes an astounding second promise. Keep in mind what we've talked about here in terms of signet rings and how in Jeremiah the the Lord says he's going to throw the people away. And the people, they're allowed to come back to the land. They're in God's place. They're God's people. but, But they have some legitimate questions. Do these promises still apply to us? Are we still the Lord's people or are we forever thrown out of his presence? And then through Haggai, the Lord says this, I will take you and make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. And then the Lord works that out. 
Now, Zerubbabel himself doesn't seem to have experienced a great deal of that promise, but, but as we look at his descendants, as we look at the line of David that passes through Zerubbabel and on to Jesus Christ, we see the Lord fulfilling that promise, that he brings his people back, that he makes us again his treasured possession. The Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ comes as king, but, but not as the type of king that anybody expects. He doesn't come bringing in an earthly kingdom with violence and power. Instead of slaughtering everyone around him, instead he lets himself be slaughtered for us and for our peace. Even at the beginning of his life, as we saw in Matthew 2, Jesus is the anti-king. He's the anti-Herod. He is not what we expect. He is the king who has all power, who is in control of everything, and yet instead of acting for just his own benefit, he comes and he provides peace for us. There was a day that, that Lee was at that at that military base in Iraq, and he got invited to go to church, and he didn't have anything else going on that Sunday evening because, well, there's not all that much entertainment on a military base in the middle of a war zone, to be honest with you. So he goes to church, and he goes back again and again. He gets into the habit, and then, then one day in particular, he is again sitting there. He's sitting there, and he's feeling driven more and more into his chair. He's only been able to have 15-minute conversations with his kids, and, and his wife has told him they're going to get a divorce, and he has to try to explain this over the phone from several thousand miles away, and life is hard, and he feels like he's out of control, and things are hopeless. And then a mortar attack begins, and then they hear the explosions outside this tent they're using for a worship service, and he just feels more and more driven into his chair. But they continue to pray and to sing. And the Lord reaches out and speaks to Lee again. And they celebrate communion and, and they pass around these little bits of bread and these little thimblefuls of, of wine in plastic cups. And, and he sits there and he looks down and he realizes, he realizes that yes, he's out of control. But again, the Lord provides. Even in the midst of a war zone, Lee finds himself again able to give up control to the Lord and to celebrate his grace. We are in a spiritual war zone. We are tired. We might be shell-shocked. Life is hard. And we are not guaranteed that, that any time in our lifetimes that, that Jesus will return and will make everything right in this world, but we are guaranteed that Jesus has come and that through the Holy Spirit, He is present in our lives today. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that Christ broke His body and shed His blood for us. And so today, the Holy Spirit draws us into God's peaceful presence and invites us to find a peace, a peace that can carry us through everything. Through everything. And so whatever chaos or conflict there might be in your life, whatever trouble you are experiencing, I invite you today to find the peace of Christ to give up control and to recognize that the Lord does care for you 
and claim you as his child. Let's pray. Father, life is so hard. There is so much conflict around us and within us. We have so many struggles. And so, Lord, we come here looking for hope and looking for peace and looking for joy and looking for love and needing Christ. Lord, we pray that for each of us today, you provide the grace and the peace that is available through Jesus Christ. We ask that you restore our relationship with you where it's broken, strengthen it where it's weak, help all of us to grow stronger in you. And Lord, we pray too that you, you mend our conflicted relationships in this world. Help us to draw together, to forgive, to be restored, to give forgiveness, and help all of us to live as signs of hope and peace in this world. Amen.